Okay. Um, welcome, everyone. Can you? Yeah, I guess you can hear me. I can hear me. Um, um, welcome to this uh, special uh, How I Write and Reading with uh, Diane de Prima. Um, and um, we've been working a long time to get Diane here, so it's great. Um, and um, she has published now over 40 books. Almost 50 now, 50 books, poetry, um, uh, uh, prose, uh, you know, plays, a whole wide uh, memoir, a whole wide range of material starting in 1957, seven, 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 seven or eight, yeah, the first book. Which yeah. is, and the first book, uh, let me just read the titles of some of the books just from this one, which is already... 10 or 12 years, this, uh, this Kind of Bird Flies Backward, uh, Dinners and Nightmares, uh, uh, Revolutionary Letters, Loba, um, kind of uh, major poems. And we knew, knew each other in the 70s, especially when I, I mark it as during Revolutionary Letters and Loba mm -hmm. time. Um, and um, remarkable poet, remarkable writer who uh, looking at material now is as strong today as then huh. and the other way around too. In other huh. words, you know, people ripen or they over ripen. No, it's still, it's still the same uh, level of intensity and of brain and of language that um, is really exciting. So um, uh, the way we do these uh, conversations um, Oh, by the way, I'm Hilton Opensinger, uh, and, um, and uh, How I Write is uh, sponsored by Continuing Studies uh, and uh, co-sponsored by the uh, Hume uh, Center for Writing and Speaking, uh, but this event is also sponsored by the Stanford Humanities Center, uh, the Department of English uh, Creative Writing Program, American Studies Program, the Program in Feminist, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, the Department of Comparative Literature, yeah, uh, and I'm sure we'll come up with a few more, you know, <laughs> the Department of Ecstasy and Enlightenment. Um, but, um, and uh, I, I teach in the uh, American Studies and the English Department, and um, been doing these conversations now for going on 12 years. Um, and you can go on Stanford on iTunes and look at previous uh, conversations with other poets, uh, Yvonne Boland, uh, Troy Jollimore, uh, others, fiction, you know, Adam Johnson, but physics as well, um, uh, all, all kinds of writing that people do. So, so the way that we'll do this tonight is um, we'll begin having a conversation which will be interrupted by Diane reading poems. Um, and she'll read some, or prose, uh, you know, uh, we'll uh, read. We'll continue having a conversation. She'll read some more. Then uh, we'll ask you to join the conversation. Um, and uh, hopefully, is, is there a, uh, a portable mic? Okay, so there's a portable mic. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll have more conversation with Diane and hopefully end with your reading sometime. Okay. And, um, 
Now, we want you to get on the mic when, when we open the conversation because these all get recorded and uh, we will uh, hopefully be able to put it up on Stanford on iTunes, the How I Write page. So uh, look for it. Uh, you can go to the Continuing Studies and connect it through there uh, or through the Writing Center and connect through there or just go directly to uh, Stanford on iTunes and hunt up How I Write. So any case, welcome. Thank you. It's great that you're here. It's nice to see you again. Yeah. It's been so long. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were talking about all kinds of different things about writing and the, and, and the work that you've done. And um, uh, I was uh, struck by your, what was it, at the age of 17, you decided to be a poet? No, at the age of 14, I decided 14. to be a poet. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, incredible independence of mind. Well, at that point also, I, once I knew that, I, I really, it wasn't really a happy moment because I knew Immediately, I knew what wasn't going to happen, like matched dishes, a, wa a, a washing machine, a regular consensus lifestyle of any sort. And um, I wasn't sad about it after that, but that one night I was sad and got it out of my system. Also, <laughs> it happened because I realized all of a sudden I had been reading and loving the romantics, which wasn't, it was a no-no. I went to a school where you, it was so intellectual that you would rather be caught reading a comic book than Thomas Wolfe's novels, mm. you know. And I would lie and say that, I'm, oh, no, I'm reading uh, Archie or, <laughs> but uh, I would always get caught anyway. But um, all my other classmates, right, the teachers were, Hunter College High School in the 50s was all women, and it was, they were intensely, wonderfully independent. They would send us out like, I went to the um, Institute of Pacific Relations to find out what was happening in Vietnam. You know, go out and find out. And um, so, so they, that was already in the air, it was in the school. And we would come in every morning, me, Audre Lorde, and a whole, maybe six other women, and we'd read our poems to each other. But I had been doing that for years. Since I was 14, I'd been writing every day. Once I decided, that I was going to be a poet. I never didn't write that day. So I had mm -hmm. a notebook. It was a school composition book, and it said, Nula, whatever. No, no day without a line in Latin, it said on front. And inside was all these poems on the lined paper. I can't stand lined paper now at all. But anyway, so from there, I got caught writing once when I was in summer school by a teacher who <laughs> made me read a poem out loud. And it was all downhill from then, and I never stopped. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that's good. <laughs> a good slide. Well, one of the things, though, um, I, I want to just get this out of my system. You went to visit Ezra Pound in St. Elizabeth mm -hmm. Mental Hospital, mm -hmm. and you actually saw him quite a bit. Well, I went down and stayed with his, right. his lover, Sherry Martinelli. Uh -huh. I stayed at her house, and um, me and a friend went down. And we, I went every day for those four or five days that we could afford to be there. Uh -huh. And um, just hit the warden, because they knew that we weren't there for long, they let us come in on days that weren't visiting days. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, because that was, in some ways, when you talk about uh, who did you study with? Mm -hmm. It's like interesting to... to I studied with Keats and Pound. Keats, right, right. Keats's letters told me everything I needed to know until I found the ABC of reading and I needed to know a little more, like the building blocks of poetry being image the dance of the language, and um, 
music, the music of the words. Those three building blocks made the whole thing. Uh -huh. And that kind of stuff from town. And I wanted to meet him because, and I was shy at first, but then in, in the piece in Cantos, he says um, something about if, if you don't, but to have gathered, but, but to have gathered from the air a large tradition, this is not vanity. Mm -hmm. And I felt, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose the opportunity to look this man in the eye, and talk mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, I know nothing about politics. I don't care. As Duncan told me, Robert Duncan said, used to say later all the time to get out of all kinds of conversations. But poetry is above politics, isn't it, dear? And it is. <laughs> I mean, it's a, who the hell cares? I mean, the planet's going to hell in a handbasket anyway, so yeah. might as well go. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'd like to write another poem, please. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, uh, all right, so uh, uh, you were able to get some kind of uh, response from him. Oh, yeah, I sent him some poems. He mm. wrote me back and said, they seem underlined to me to be well written, but, <laughs> big dash, no one ever much use as critic of younger generation. Oh, all right. And that sort of gave me a lot right there for how to teach later. Mm -hmm. Keep my hands off younger people's work. Try mm -hmm. to grok what they're after, and if I could figure that out by hanging out with them, then I could nudge them in that direction. You might want to read blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But no one ever much use as critic of younger generation. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing I wanted to add, we were talking before, uh, and you know, this is all kind of in your your book, Recollections of My Life as a Woman. That um, Donald Allen doing that historic anthology, mm -hmm. New American Poetry, uh, 1945, 90s, 1960, yeah. right? Uh, which really opened up, you know, Allen Ginsberg and uh, and you know, the Duncan, and, uh, and Duncan and Olson and yeah. Uh, all of this kind of new poetry. Frank O'Hara, the New York, all those Right, yeah. And, and uh, he said to you, well, I'm not including you. Well, he told me, and he caught me between the front and the back of Hetty and Leroy Jones's house. I was lovers with Leroy. And Amiri said, Baraka. Amiri today, Baraka, yeah. the poet. And he said that um, Leroy's wife, Hetty Jones, asked me, had asked him not to put me in the book because she was very angry that I was sleeping with her husband. And I said, oh, oh, okay, okay. Hetty was so angry that we had to change passages in recollections. She's still mad. She's mad about things that were good in the book. That I talked about how she came to my house and helped me out when I had mononucleosis, and she, I never went to that woman's house. Well, we worked at Partisan Review together for years. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, okay. Anyway, that's there, neither. There's here. somebody that's else. The to, there's somebody else to be mad at in gossip, that scene. Gossips <laughs> do, not, do not matter. There's Leroy. Gossips are, are below but, poetry. Too. But um, poetry but the thing gossip. is, he also. Uh, another. How many women were in that anthology? How many women were in it? I think zero. Was how, Joanne was, in there? Who? Barbara Gess. Barbara That's it. Not was, Joanne Kiger. No, she she, she wasn't was. writing yet. No. So this is like a, He did a, a revised one in about, what, 1990s? Oh, I don't remember that. He made a revised New American Poetry. Hey, guys, what, ha what happened back there was different than I thought. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, so the thing is, I mean, I don't want to pound on him, care, you know, no. beat him up or anything, but, but um, as, a, as a woman poet, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then this whole thing of you know being from the beatnik generation, although I, we could talk about that. Mm-hmm. You were before the beatnik generation, and so right. or people didn't yeah. give it a name. No, no uh, in terms no name of, when we did. of of what what the kind of work that people, amazing work, you know from. Mm. Dance and art and uh, yeah. uh, everything, All that but stuff, yeah. but you know, y- you asserted yourself. But when did things kind of turn around that there was this recognition that you were part of this literary upheaval, artistic upheaval? I don't know whether there ever got to be a recognition per se. Okay, I was pub- you know I published new handbook of I mean, uh, this kind of bird flies backward. I did it myself in my kitchen because the guys that were going to publish it decided they didn't, they decided, they, they asked me for a book, these folks that had bought a press, and then they decided, oh, I don't think I want to be a publisher after all. I said, well, I've got this whole thing laid mm-hmm. out, typed up, so I'll print it. He said, they said, oh, you can use our press. I said, great, we'll show you how to use it, great. So I did that, and then there it was, and we stapled it, and I have, collated it, stapled it, folded it with a piece of bone, nice, lovely thing to do and then send it off to be trimmed, and a book becomes a book after it's trimmed. That's mm-hmm. such a nice moment when you get it back, all like that. And then I had all these 900 copies of a book in my house, so I put them in the back of the stroller where I had my first baby because I wanted a kid, but I didn't want a guy around. And I drove, around the, I drove the stroller around town and dropped them off at bookstores on consignment. They disappeared in less than a year. So, and somebody picked it up to do a reprint, paper book traffic, whoever they were. And um, I don't remember, honestly, I don't remember who those people were. And <laughs> the book stayed in print for a long time. And then it wasn't in print anymore, but I was doing, I, book, about a book a year was coming out around then. Mm-hmm. So it's basically, I mean, in, in, in talking about your... Cottage industry. Poetry well, is a cottage industry. Well, and, and you had a, a, an active cottage that yeah. moved, moved around quite a bit. And, uh, it, no, I stayed, I stayed on the east side in the same apartment for several years. People uh-huh. came in. It was an active cottage because lots of people came in to work at it. Yeah. 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 They would all come in. They, we'd call it, or we'd do the floating bear out of it later. Right, and that was which is a literary, a literary newsletter that we mailed out. And very influential in bringing together a lot of different writers like mm-hmm. Duncan and Frank O'Hara and, and others. Yeah. And people from this coast. And when I came out for the first time, one of the Jack Spicer friends, George mm-hmm. Stanley, said, "You're bringing together people of all these schools." And I said, what schools? Because I didn't really know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about schools. We were just p- publishing the best poems we could find. And I was editing that with Leroy. Well, and so uh, I, I'll ask you one, yeah, uh, I'll ask you one thing. You, you kind of talk a little bit about the East Coast and the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Then and it was like that. That there was this uh, yeah. very different scenes, very different approach to aesthetics, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And. Um, Ha, I assume that's changed. I think it Maybe. changed and then changed again. I think it was more homogenous for a while, and now it's. I think it's. It's pretty. New York is pretty different to me from. I mean, the aesthetic is pretty different to me again, uh-huh. or part of it anyway. One of the things I remember from back then was never being able to look like everybody else because I had this long, long hair which I wasn't going to cut for them, which came down to here. And I would wear red satin ballet slippers and crazy dresses with, uh-huh. you know, and I was always pregnant in Jordanian dresses or something. And uh-huh. 
And every, I would go to a thing at the Museum of Modern Art, and everybody would be in their little black dress with their and their little black pumps. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I would feel like, what am I doing here exactly? And the first time I came out to this coast and went out to stay, first I stayed with McClure in the city, and then I went to Larkspur and, and on the mud flats, stayed uh -huh. with George Herms, who was he's an assemblage artist. He had all his work out on the mud, and he was being evicted because he was a public nuisance, and he was having a new sense party. So I went out to that. I said, these people don't think I'm, I don't think they're exotic. They don't think I'm exotic. I feel at home. I'm going to move out here. And it took me a while, but I moved the whole kit and caboodle. When I moved, I moved 14 grown-ups, all their kids and dogs and cats and rifles and t typewriters and uh -huh. got a 14-room house on the panhandle of Oak right. Street. Uh -huh. You remember that? I remember that, yeah. yeah it was $300 a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had an in-law apartment and a big garden. Yeah, and that was and we like, ran the, we ran was the that 70, 71, or 69? 19, yeah, that was 1968. Okay. I came out, 67 yeah. I came out, but I brought along my husband of the moment, and he got paranoid. He decided that it was too far out for him, and he's going to be off on those streets because he was too conservative. So. We went back to the East Coast. I sent him to India on my credit cards, and I went moved while he was away. <laughs> All of those grown-ups and kids, he came back to the Hotel Albert where we were living, and we were there. Re remember these techniques <laughs> for, uh, for getting rid of people. Just send them away on your credit card. Somebody had to pay off the credit card. But the <laughs> I don't know. If you go out you know, and take a look, uh, here's a, a picture. Now, when was this picture taken? In about 55. 1955. It was before the village was invaded by Dylan and those guys. Bob right. Dylan and those guys. Yeah. Before the village was known the as village the village. village yeah. Right? There's a. Oh, when was this picture that taken? That was taken when I was about 18. I had just wow. dropped out of school. Wow. <laughs> Terrific picture. Well, so. We used to like to take photos in empty lots full of. Like, it was the time of those Italian films after the mm -hmm. war, mm -hmm. so we'd go find a lot full of rubble and do some dancing and take a <laughs> lot of photos. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that, you know, well, what's uh, uh, really striking is your independence of mind uh, and of choices, mm -hmm. as, as you were saying. You know, you, would, uh, you, you had a very striking way uh, of going ahead with poetry and, uh -huh. and other kinds of writing, putting aside even other things about life. But right. And, uh, and eventually even, you know, coming to a kind of spiritual type of writing of various yeah, sorts. Yeah. And that's, uh, you're still moving in that direction. Well, you know, it's very interesting. It's like at some point there started to be a couple of serial poems. They just go on and on and on. One is the Revolutionary Letters and one is Loba. And they, it's like there's two two strands, one uh -huh. is very pragmatic and one is this very, sometimes very far out. Right. Geography of the female imagination, says Adrian Rich, but whatever it is, it just invaded me one day and wouldn't go away because very often I just hear a poem and I have to stop what I'm doing and write it. Is that right? Or something like that. So it just, uh, not always, but I imagine, so sometimes the poem comes to you. Yeah, sometimes I hear it. Or, or sometimes with Loba, I was car would carry around an image, like literally, picture that for months in different notebooks until the words came that went with it. Mm. So that can happen too. But some things I still 
worked on as if I was honing them, like um, some of the revolutionary letters I had to work on because they were, for me, those things were like guerrilla theater because when I went out, first in New York, there was flatbed trucks going around town in the late 60s in Spanish Harlem and in the, in the black neighborhoods and we were reading revolutionary poems. But the poems I had were too, I'll read you part of one. They were too intellectual. They were like, um, oh, they were like the poems that are now in the back of revolutionary letters, but aren't the revolutionary letters. They're poems like, um, we are in the midst of a bloody, heart-rending revolution called America, America called the Protestant Reformation called Western man, called individual consciousness, meaning I need a refrigerator and a car. And these were two, they, they were hard for people to follow off a bat, flatbed truck and I, or goodbye Nkrumah. And yet, where would we be without the American culture? Bye-bye Blackbird as Miles plays it in the 50s, those coffee malteds. When the radio told me there was dancing in the streets, I knew we had an engineered another coup bought off another army. And I wondered what the guys at the Black Arts Theater were saying and sent them my love and my help, which they would not accept. Why should they? It's their war. And that goes on. But those were two. They weren't for the street. So that's when they, these stories had happened. The first ones happened <clears throat> without my having that plan in mind. I was, of course, I was in somebody's house babysitting a house in L.A. while I was waiting to find out whether or not somebody was going to buy a book of mine for a movie, which of course never happened. But while I was there, I saw something on TV that got me so mad. It was about GE moving in on the Navajo reservation. And I, this just happened at that point. I have just realized that the stakes are myself. I have no other ransom money, nothing to break or barter, but my life, my spirit, measured out in bits, spread over the roulette table. <clears throat> I recoup what I can. Nothing else to shove under the nose of the maître de jeu. Nothing to thrust out the window, no white flag. This flesh, all I have to offer, to make my play with. This immediate head, what it comes up with, my move as we slither over the scoreboard, stepping always, we hope, between the lines. Mm -hmm. That happened in this uh, movie producer's house one night. And then they started to happen a lot soon after that. And um, well, like this early one, that became a, a poster at one point. Everything became a poster when the Fillmore was going and everything was a poster, you know. Left to themselves, people grow their hair. Left to themselves, they take off their shoes and so on, like that kind of thing. And then they got more practical, like <coughs> they talked about storing wa water in your bathtub if you needed mm -hmm. it. Because they, do t they turned off the water in Newark during one of the big riots and that was the biggest problem. We could get in on back roads. They had blockaded the roads, but we could bring food in that we couldn't figure out what to do about the water. Um, so those things, as you learn them, I would put them into letters at that point. 
that was an interesting time. And um, then they came, can you own land? Can you own house, own rights to others' labor, stocks, or factories, or money loaned at interest? What about the yields of same crops, autos, airplanes, dropping bombs? Can you own real estate so others pay you rent? To whom does the water belong? To whom will the air belong as it gets rarer? The American Indians say that a man can own no more than he can carry away on his horse. And you know, times went on and things changed and the letters kept changing with them and there was a thing called the Liberation News Service mm -hmm. and I would give them bunches of letters whenever I wrote them and, and they were constant. They would mail them out to all the newspapers that were like free, free papers in all the country, in all the big cities, about 200 of them. They weren't like the, the way San Francisco, whatever that was called, San Francisco Times and those things are now. They were nothing like that. They were, they were fierce revolutionary papers. They were all over and they were in Canada. I was, they were everywhere, everywhere in the country, Georgia, <coughs> to Vancouver, to Toronto. They were everywhere and the letters would come out in them. Even the Black Panther newspaper published one of my letters, or two of my letters at one point, and they were, and this kind of thing was going on, like I was doing this all the time, about every, almost every issue that I had new letters for them. Mm. And, um, and then the letters, after a while, you know, I, at one point, they, what happened to me was that people started behave, weir behaving weird when I went on road, on road trips to read, people would say, what is your plan for the people of San Francisco? <laughs> and of course I didn't have a <coughs> I said, well, I think my next door neighbor has her own plan, thank you. <laughs> but, but it was like this really organized red kind of energy instead of like more anarchist energy. And I, I said, mm, I think I'm going to go to the country. Plus the FBI was at my front door every night banging on the door. I was sending different kids to the door because everybody growing up at the table was wanted for the draft or wanted for something else. Yeah, was, yeah. yeah it was really like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, we and that. Revolutionary Letters is uh, so much of that moment, yeah. at, at least those of that period. Yeah. You wrote some later, it's yeah, but so very much of that period, so that I think of a lot of people reading it today <laughs> who didn't live through that will think, gee, this seems kind of extreme. Put, well, water in the bathtub, I mean, if there's an earthquake, you know, but the yeah. fact that uh, actually that there was such uh, police repression uh, and, and, and upheaval going and on. There was, and the whole country seemed like it could go off with, the, and with the one match dropping at some point. Mm -hmm. It seemed like it could. We were that close to everything just changing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would have been better or worse, but it would have changed. Well, now we need a blowtorch over a long period of time, yeah, not one yeah. match. But so... Well, then that's one type of, of writing that you did. That yeah. was very thing. And then you had this kind of, right. Uh, right. Uh, like Loba. Right. Well, what happened was, with Loba was, and well, at a very early point, I was always I was, at first I was writing as if I, I was revising a lot. I wanted to get really smooth, streamlined, clean line. I had on the wall of my apartment on, in Hell's Kitchen, sacrifice everything to the clean line. 
And that wasn't only me, the painters in my house, we all felt like that. The, the Matisse line drawings had just come out from Andover books. And we looked and we saw that you could see color in a black and white page by the way you wielded the line. Much later now I've written a poem that says, let the line shake the hand, it's a living thing. Mm -hmm. But that's now, that, was, that wasn't then. So I was really, really, really wanting those clean lines and I was writing Fierce stuff, but <coughs> early fierce, but it was like, I have a bunch of stuff here called more or less love poems and dinners and nightmares. I'll show you, but give you one or two of them. I wonder why we slept at all those nights and what we missed. You bet your life, next bedtime, I'll get even. I'll call your name wrong. <laughs> and you'll think it happened accidentally. <laughs> so that kind of clean line, right? <laughs> really. Or I think you'll, well, no, that wasn't the one I was looking for. It was, I hope you go through hell tonight, beloved. I hope you choke to death on lumps of stars and buy your bed a window with frost and moon on frost. And you want to scream and can't because your woman is, I hope, right there, asleep. Baby, I hope you never close your eyes so two of us can pick up on this dawn. So those were the clean line, you know, that was clean line poems, and, and I did that for quite a while. Um, well, I left school and wrote every, once I dropped out of college, I spent half the day writing and half studying. I took the agenda more or less that Pound proposed and taught myself some Homeric Greek, enough so I could read, sound out the poems. Um, and I had that grammar that's just Homeric Greek. Like Barnes and Nobles was great for secondhand textbooks. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had all those yeah. old grammars, a good Dell's Latin one and so. And so I'd study half the day and the other half I'd write. And I'd study it usually at home and then I'd take my notebook and go out and, and write, roam around the city and write. And, and then typing and revising happened at home in the evening. We needed very little, so $70 a month covered the rent. The house was $33, the apartment, four of us lived in it. It was a cold water flat, no heat, bathroom in the hall. Didn't expect much, we were, I was a poet, I didn't expect that I'd have more than that, so it was fine. And people would come in the evening, they'd all bring something, we'd get together. Somebody bring the bread, somebody bring, and I always had a big soup. Somebody bring dessert, somebody bring bread, and we'd all get together. Then we'd go out and play in the city, you know. Just usually we didn't have the money to do anything but in things we invented. So we would go out and play, make the city a playground somehow. And um, so that was how it was then. And then for me with the poem, you know, I felt the tightness of that after a while. He didn't go, couldn't go further with that. And one thing that happened for me that was very helpful that Jack Kerouac did was he, they came through when they were going to India in 
57, February 57. And uh, I, I read, some, I read, everybody was reading, so I read some of these poems like the, I just read you, and Jack said, what, what did it look like when you first wrote it? And we went back to my verb, and he said, hmm, I like those words. What you could, and what I got was a sense you could always go back to those drafts and pull something out. And when you, when you got stuck, you, you know. And then I got the sense that how your mind worked in the first place was very interesting. And then I took a class with James Waring in composition. He was a, he was a choreographer, but I wanted to take his composition class. It was 10 classes long. Writing composition. No, it was dancing. Oh, dancing yeah, composition. Yeah, I just okay. went to. I was dancing anyway. I, yeah. just, I was taking dance and I was doing some performing with him. And so, in this dance composition class, one of the classes he gave was tonight. We're going to talk about form. Everything has a form. said nothing else. <laughs> After about 10 minutes, we all started to go out the door. We were looking at everything. Oh, that has a form. That has a form. So like what he was telling us is all, every, all forms are okay, you know. Don't, don't leave your mind alone. Don't mess with everything all the time. And um, he didn't say that. I'm putting in the words of a kinpo out here, a Tibetan Lama, but it's the same principle, really. And um, I started to write and try to follow my mind wherever it went, and not, not what Philip Whelan calls the graph of the moving mind. Write exactly what, what's happening as closely as you can. And one of the things that came out of that was um, this book called Calculus of Variation, if it's uh, here someplace. Here it is. Oh, yeah. What happened was, it, okay, I don't know how much time have we got. I don't Just know. Just keep going. Okay. Well, you know, they'll start passing out, it'll be all right. Okay. Um, so at one point, um, soon after that, I decided I was going to write, I wanted to write something longer that was watching my mind move. So I decided I would take, was one of the things I learned from Jimmy's class was taking a structure and then hanging absolute freedom on the structure. So in this case, I took the eight trigrams that make up the I Ching, and they were going to be the eight sections of this book. And then I would immerse myself in the qualities of the first, like the first tri trigram is the creative, heaven, masculine, clarity. Or <coughs> I'd immerse myself by that. I mean, I'd listen to that kind of music. I'd just be in that kind of state for a couple of months. And then I'd start writing, and I'd just write. And I'd write whatever showed up on the wall in front of my typewriter. And I say that, and one of the kids I said that to in some reform school in Wyoming where I was teaching said, man, she must have taken a lot of acid. <laughs> but this was way before acid or any of that. I was say, writing what showed up on the wall in front of my big red IBM typewriter. And in the very beginning, before, there was a little prologue at the end, postulate a woman, blue light behind her, unexpected, bluer than turtles, the glint, the mud, the unexpected shores, or have her chewing her mustachios. Elucidate, after all, the roof fell in. Peaches, pomegranates, a quick trip, the booster shot, whatever handle comes to mind. Nobody washes down brick, no, nobody pokes out the lizards, 
the sun for wallpaper, climate paving the way. I mean, the flying fish are getting smaller. Jeannie, I said, this won't hurt. God knows what they were doing. She never told me later. She ate dried apricots, third suicidal era. After a certain point, all the colors are muddy. And that was before it began then. <coughs> In the first section, you know, heaven began. Movement of heaven is full of power. That's the third, in the third paragraph of this verse. Butterflies turn the earth somewhere to the east. Yellow and white, the maidens walk, bowls in their hands, and the light on the offerings, and so on. And it kept moving, I didn't realize it, but it also kept moving towards something closer to narrative, although I wasn't moving it there particularly, myself, consciously. Like, okay, here's the feast is the hexagram um, fire, I guess. Yeah. I don't remember them now. On the See, I'll look it up. It's in the front of the book. The feast is fire, the clinging, the second daughter. The feast. On the dark stair, the stranger whose footsteps creak, the oracle who wears no robe, moon and stars on his gown, his plaited hair, fight with the fire god for repossession, to own your house. We sat on a goatskin rug, discovering the open laughter to my gothic husband, my own small dark ways, that they should take care, send radio, sending radio signals out across the city, the fight for possession of that small thin body. Ding dong, the witch is dead, the wicked witch, the wicked witch. Timothy Baum crossed wires, never made it. Jimmy Waring again refused salvation, who took the wallet. Mo, the wise old servant, I wore black velvet, lay on the goatskin rug, and goes on and kept moving toward the last section was like, to me now it seems totally narrative. Let me, it's the, the last hexagram is the joyous of the lake, the youngest daughter. <coughs> Let me extol your body, the living flesh. The head is small and turns in toward the pillow as the light turns falling on your neck, one hand tucked out of sight, the living flesh, what darkness shimmers on your shoulder, peace like a child, the long white feet stretch out, crusted with city dirt, the ankle bone streaked, gentle soft flesh, thickish about the middle, I slip an arm around you as you sleep, soft in the middle, gentle like a girl, your son is tougher, your son's skin less smooth. Let me praise light that falls on your morning hair. Creeps up the edge of buildings, bare brick walls, and falls in pools on the flat tar roof outside. And moves on and on. till it ended in a poem suddenly. going through all these various things to cannot help loving the bowl and potter's wheel, the singing lines of joy. And someone came to finally, all of a sudden, much to my surprise, I mean, I didn't think anything at the time. One of the things I kept telling myself, I revised this thing. And when I was all done, 
and I sat down to start rewriting it. I knew how to make it smooth and really like hip uh, kind of uh, avant-garde prose. And I knew that if I did that, I would be violating this book. So all of a sudden, I decided, hmm, I'm going to, I can't touch this. I'm going to leave it as, I'm going to leave all the flaws in it. And I got a <coughs> an offer from New Directions to publish it, but they wanted to assign me an editor. And I said, I'm sorry, this is in the nature of a received text. I can't touch it. And I never did. And so I published it myself and never did publish with New Directions. There was other reasons, too, like I was a girl and so on. That came up later, <laughs> though. Then they wanted to do it. And suddenly I was toward the end of it, and the end sort of went like this. Stripped of all things, <coughs> stripped of all things I love, loving all things, the brick wall in the sunlight, the blue sky, the black smoke, I moved through these as I'd move through a picture book. And then this poem happened. And praise the grace, the elegance of body, your hands, flesh of my children, thin giraffes raising themselves in the sun on distant plains, the elegance of mantis and of beetle, the clear precisions of the shooting stars, colors of water, sounds of the city air, directio voluntatis, the clear will shining like rubies through the lucid eyes, the city of Dioce, long eyes of cats in the grass, and goes on till it comes to an end. Let the pure pain tear your throat till you split blood, cry out, rejoice, that which must come to birth, even the goddess mother cannot dream of. We climb from rung to rung, a circular, undeviating, golden, perfect ladder of ages long forgotten to be told over and over like a string of prayer beads. The Ferris wheel has started up again. <laughs> Well, with that, with that, let's uh, open it up for yeah, okay, good. Uh, join the conversation. Good. Uh, you got that mic? Oh no! Good. So, uh, okay. What we'll do is we'll we'll hand you the mic, and then the next person you'll hand the mic to them. So, right here, gentlemen. Is it on? Nope. Wait a second. It will be on. Now? Hello? Yeah. I don't have a question, I have a compliment. I worked for Columbia Records for 28 years, yeah, and I know? want to... Uh, which, which records? Columbia Records. Columbia. And I want to thank you from our artists for all that you have influenced on their music. and passed on to our generation. Wow. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> Which artist do you, the, in particular? Oh, I would say Dylan, The Birds, in particular. Oh, all right. But, Thank but you. But all of your writings they've mentioned, and, and it's very obvious in their lyrics that your visions were projected in them. Mm. Thanks. Thank you right. very much. You know, I don't think about that, but that's great. You know, uh, let's have another question. Yeah. Or another compliment. 
Oh, I'm sure you can cook up something. Here, here we go, right, the, the lady, uh, yeah, two rows you. ahead. Here we go. Hello. Hi. Oh, this is so formal. <laughs> uh, my name's Amanda. It's very Hi, nice Amanda. to meet you. After reading your poetry, it's, it's just nice to put a face and a voice um, to what's on the page. Um, so I thought the way that the conversation started out was quite interesting. We sort of laid out um, the particular forms, the wide range of forms that you work within. And so I was curious, um, when you write, how much are you consciously working within the genres and how much, yeah, go ahead. How much are you sort of pushing or, or blending the boundaries of, say, the genres of poetry and of prose um, to work have, with, for example, your prose I poems? I can't consciously do anything at all. I don't know what happens. A poem comes to me. Okay. Okay. Now, that wasn't true, as I said early on. I worked hard at smoothing poems out. Yeah. But nowadays, I mean, if a love of poem arrives, it means to me that love has visited me. I, I don't, can't even, don't even know how to invite her, much less. So when, when love began, I was in a classroom teaching in, uh, in somewhere in um, San Mateo or somewhere in the farm community, uh, Gilroy. <laughs> and... Um, and I was teaching with with Elias, um, what was it, Ruskay Cortez. Cortez. Yeah. We were both teaching this class because I was spent, we were having them all write poems, and all of a sudden I'm hearing in my head, if he does not come apart in her hands, he fell like flint on her ribs. So poor Elias is right, is teaching the class, and I'm scribbling because it wasn't going to stop saying those lines until I wrote them down and got the next lines. And so it went on from there. And that's what mainly happens. I mean, with love, it happens to me. It comes to me. Sometimes I'll still hone a revolutionary letter, but mostly they come to me too, the late ones. You know, I'm so indignant or so... Or I, I might carry around the idea for a long time for a revolutionary letter. Like all these kids do shooting up their schools, right? Some of their faces haunted me, have haunted me for ages. And there was a day that um, I was having my class... I used to, teach write, used to teach writing privately. I had them write a political poem because they all didn't want to. They felt it was very uncool. And while they were all doing it, that case came again that I, from the newspaper in my mind, and I started. It's here, I'm not going to read it, but I'll read you a couple of lines. It began, if I can find it quick, Avenging Angels, sticks of dynamite wrapped in baby blankets, baby blue like their eyes, not human, elemental eyes spewing fire. And so the revolutionary letters can come like that too. It's very rare these days that I make a poem because, you know, if you can do it, why bother? If you know it's already been done, why do it? As Stein said, some words better than that, some that effect. If something can be done, why do it, is what she said. Mm. Well, but you did write plays. Hmm? You wrote plays. Oh yeah, well, I, most of those plays were well. Were some poems. of those plays, right? Yeah, they were most of those plays were just I thought of them as word scores. Uh -huh. You could make any scenario you want, any plot you want, for most of my plays. But they're just words. You can, like, there's one murder cake that has happened as a bikers convention at a lake, as an English tea party, things like that. Somebody came up to me and told me they were performing. The conversations part of 
Dinners and Nightmares on a circuit from Phoenix to LA for years, some gay man. He said, I thank you for my living. I'm, I said, well, thanks. <laughs> Why don't you send me some royalties? He <laughs> 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 turned it into an act. It into turned, turned it into an act. Wow, yeah. that's great. I mean, it's you great. never know. But I don't know. The plays I didn't, I couldn't write. You know, the first play I wrote was, I, I had an idea, and I wrote it as a play. It was, uh, the whole plot was getting up in the morning. It was for me and one guy, Freddie Herco, and we performed it. The two of us getting up in the morning in our house. But, but after that, I just made up sports scores. Mm-hmm. Which was like playing with chance composition, which a whole other mm-hmm. game we can talk about sometime. Okay, yeah, just as a quick follow-up before the next person speaks. I think that's such an interesting thing to point out, this kind of like subconscious mentality to the act of writing because especially coming from our end when we're doing kind of the scholarly aspect especially in English um, that really doesn't come into play and I've only seen it really in linguistics departments where we're taught that this kind of attention to the rhythm of language is really innate and not and not something that you're consciously putting on the page so well, you have to learn your craft you know yeah, and when you're learning too. your craft you really work at it you, you hone your it ear becomes. you hone all your senses but then when they once they're honed they're there at your disposal mm-hmm. and that's what you can look forward to or play with like Coleridge's poem the Aeolian Heart you can ch- check that out hmm. Anybody else? Am I scaring you guys? Oh, there's plenty. Uh, this, well, pass, pass the mic to the lady over here, and then we've got in front. Was it hard to be a woman beatnik? Hmm? Was it hard to be a woman beatnik? Oh, everyone asks that. It's, no, not at all. You're just you're yourself. I mean, I didn't think of myself as a girl or a boy. I, I don't know what the guys were thinking about when I would sometimes answer the door when I, and with almost nothing on. Joel Oppenheimer wrote a whole story about it. He was very upset, but that was his problem, not mine. (laughs) But no, seriously, um, I wasn't a woman beatnik. First of all, there weren't any beatniks when I started. What's a beatnik? I mean, that's something that magazines made up later, or different people claim they made that word up. Herb Cain. Herb Cain is one, but there are several. Okay, so you couldn't be a beatnik if you didn't know they existed. I just saw that movie, Kill Your Darlings. And there, you know, it was all male and very yeah. gay. You, know, you, but anyway. you can see it or you can not see it. If you don't want to see it, don't go. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that was an all male scene. I mean, yeah. Ginsburg and Kerouac and. Yeah, it was. And I, I didn't even I didn't know those guys back then. I met. Well, yes, they were going to. I met Liam later when they got out. He was pretty and bright and scary. I mean, as pointed out, it's an all-male school in Columbia, but still. If, if um, you read the beginning of Recollections, you find that I w- learned very early from my grandmother that men were decorative, but not the, they didn't do the business. They weren't important in the world because they didn't do, deal with the daily business of life. They were, you know, it was nice to have one around, but they came and went and did their thing, and you did yours. My grandfather was an anarchist. He'd quit a job every time. Somebody had been insulted or been put, or had been fired at work. He'd bring the person home and all of the person's kids. And my grandmother would cook for them too. And she and her the girls in the family also would take in crochet beading or something else to make enough money to feed this extended family. 
and eventually my, gra my grandfather was a customs tailor, made me very good money. And he'd work at home and then another job would happen and then the, some other thing that had happened that didn't accord with anarchism politics and everybody would come over to the house to eat again. So I learned from her that, you know, this is okay, men come and go. They have their business, we have ours. And frankly, the, coming from the family I came from, I was just as happy not to have my, any men living in my house ever. I raised my kids. I wouldn't, never wanted an alimony. I mean, God Almighty, I gave the guy some say as to how he raised these children. I didn't want that. You know, that's a, <laughs> didn't, didn't work that way for me. Yeah, and, and maybe now it's different. Maybe, maybe guys are cool and it's good to do that, but I don't, I'm not doing that now, so I don't know. I still see younger families that I've known a long time, and the woman will take in childcare and do her painting, and the guy will only write. He'll go up to his tower and type all day, all night, and sleep all day. <laughs> Pass it up, up here. Um, Diane, would you comment any, would you like to comment any further on differences between poetry in coming out of New York or the East Coast and the West Coast? Either, now or then or what? Well, that's what I was going to say, either then or now or both. Well, it wasn't so much poetry coming out of the coasts then, it was kind of whole lifestyle or an aesthetic, it was different on the two coasts. And... Um, I don't know exactly. We did a play, a play of Michael McClure's when I had Poets Theater in New York. It was uh, called the uh, it was called Blossom of Billy the Kid. It was very intense one act play, and it was George Hearns made the sets, and they were very opulent assemblage things, and there were even he made assemblage theater goers for the first row and all that. And people from uh, my friends in New York, like Frank O'Hara, who came to all of our plays, could make no sense of that one at all. I mean, to him it didn't, it was not, it did not compute. Mm -hmm. And, our, you know, it was just that they were just, world, the two aesthetics were just different. The lifestyles, the clothes, everything. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that I was, as I said to Les on the way up here, I was, I was always an aesthetic, I was always an exotic in New York because I never wore those little black sheets. And um, probably wouldn't have fit in them anyway, but... <clears throat> But out here, nobody noticed I was just one of the crowds, so that I wanted to move out here early on. That kind of thing about mm -hmm. the aesthetic. I can't explain it in mm -hmm. single words. No, they weren't, you would never catch anybody with a million stones from the sea and shells and pieces of junk on their windowsill in New York. Well, there'll be junk on the windowsill, but it wouldn't be it that. Would be junk, <laughs> By the way, if you have to leave, go out this way and buy a book. Um, yeah, over here. Buy books, buy books, buy books. Right here. Right here. <laughs> Hi, it's a pleasure meeting you. Hi. Uh, in your first book, how did you come to choose the title, This Kind of Bird Flies Backward? It's the title of one of the poems in the book. And what does it mean? I don't know. Okay. Do you know then? Don't know now. <laughs> that was That's one because it flies backwards. Well, that was one of those poems that just happened <laughs> like that. have to buy the book. Um, do we have that book around? If I did, I, I'm read. not. I, I don't think out here, unless yeah. it's in the collected. Um, yeah. well, they, they they have it out there. Okay. I have another question. Uh, also, I was just wondering, what was Timothy Leary like? He was a love. 
He was a wonderful man. When I stayed at Millbrook, uh, um, that would be a whole nice story, but his, uh, the whole aim of, of that community was, on, from his point of view, to gather together a whole bunch of creative folk, let them have as much acid as they wanted, and let them have any supplies they needed for like painting, writing, or anything else, and, um, and turn, you know, turn, turn them loose with all those materials and see what they came up with, what they created, what they wanted to do, what they wanted to make. If you accidentally expressed a wish to like be a photographer, you'd find a camera and all kinds of film and stuff in your house the next day on the land there, you know, stuff like that. He would go out on the road to make money to pay these bills to keep us all there doing what we pleased to do, what we wanted to do. That was part of his, that's part of his story. Thank and you. And we were able to produce a lot? Yeah, I was writing a lot there, yeah, yeah. I, we had an, a separate house there, we had a little, a lot of people lived in the main house, which was 64 rooms. Um, the, the land belonged to the Mellon family, and um, they had another house on the land, which they called the cottage, which was only 40-something rooms, <laughs> and it had a copper roof, and then all, but anyway, we stayed, but we, I didn't want to live in the main house. I wanted to be away so I could work more. And they had a chalet, which was a bowling alley downstairs, and some kind of billiards room upstairs, which was just, it was just a high-peaked room with a small room to the side, small room I rode in, the big room we lived in. And um, yeah, I got a lot of writing done, and I typeset Philip Welland's book on Bear's Head, which we oh. were going to publish. Uh -huh. I was going to publish Poets uh -huh. Press. It had all his drawings in it. Uh -huh. And um, Philip got a deal with the du Double Day, I think it was, or whoever did it, and they offered him money and he wanted to get back to Japan. He didn't let me know. He did it with them. And they did it, and only recently did I discover that it didn't have the pictures in it because I never opened it because I knew the poems by then. And I was very mad at him for going with somebody who wouldn't put his their pictures in when he'd already agreed to do it with us and whatever. But. I wrote him a very funny, mad poem, but I wasn't really mad. You know, we were hung out anyway all the time, the last years of his life. What, what happened to those pictures? That manuscript, that just when I was so mad, I put it all, well, all the, everything stripped in by hand. I put it all in the wastebasket at Millbrook and oh. threw it out. Too bad. Yeah. Um, where is the mic now? Oh, yeah, one, one over here and then in front. Yeah. Uh, what was Frank O'Hara like? Where are you? I can't see. Who He's right uh, here, right up yeah, in the yeah. front. Oh, there you are. Frank O'Hara. Can you tell something about Frank O'Hara? What was Frank O'Hara like? Frank, I sort of felt like Frank was, I don't know, these, these are such, they're so like they're anecdotal. I don't know if they're any use at all to anybody. But well, we'll judge. Frank, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I met Frank and uh, he lived a few blocks from me and we hung out a bunch because I would walk up there with a baby carriage, and Jeannie was little, my first one, and we'd hang out and talk and blah, blah, blah. He would lose his poems all over the house, and I could look anywhere to find poems. I mean, like in the drawers with the towels, I would find poems here and there for the Floating Bear, which was my mimeograph newsletter, and I'd say, Frank, can I have this and this and this and that? And sure, and there was always a typewriter in his kitchen table, so if he was having a cocktail party, in his other room, he'd go into the kitchen and type a line every once in a while and go back inside. There was always a poem in the works, at least one. And um, I don't know, he sort of took, I felt like he was very interested in taking certain poets 
under his wing like he wanted me to meet what he considered the younger bunch, which was, at that time, Bill Berkson was three years, who was all of three years younger than me, was the younger bunch. I met him through Frank, and then Tony Toll and Ron Padgett. And these, I want you to meet these younger guys, and then we, you know, some, I'm, Bill and me and Frank had, we'd go sometimes, or at least once, Bill, Bill said he met me there, but I don't think so, at the, there was near where Frank curated, near the Museum of Modern Art, there was a kind of a bar he would go to for lunch that um, me and Frank and, and Bill Bergson ate at a few times, and that, you know, it was just, I don't know, it was just daily life stuff, you know? like that, and um, sometimes he would get very drunkly bitter about himself, and it would be, later in life it reminded me, thinking back on it much later, it reminded me of a later time in my life when I worked at the BIA schools, Bureau of Indian Affairs in Arizona, and I watched the Navajo kids play chicken with the trucks in a suicidal way, and kids committed suicide that way all the time. And I used to watch Frank do that sometimes at night mm. with the trolleys under the, when the L was still up, mm. it was just coming down on third a on Fourth Avenue, I guess I don't know where it was, Second Avenue. Second, Second Avenue, Avenue L, yeah. Yeah, and just walk, you know, walking down the middle of the street, and then I wondered, I don't know, I wondered what, we, what he was doing that night in Fire Island. Was he pushing the taxi? What I was see. happening? I don't know. So yeah, yeah. So the the accident may have. I I don't know. People uh, also say that he that the accident wasn't an accident because that the 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 thing that hit him was out to trash some gays. Oh. It was a dune buggy that was out to kill somebody. That. Well, night. it was a, a beach taxi, right? Or he was and he was in a cab. Somebody else hit him, and well, he I got see. the the I story see. is a taxi got. This ca cab he was in got stuck in the sand. He got out to help a cab driver push. Uh -huh. And then some other dune buggy that was driving along toward the edge of the beach came by and clipped him. Mm. Now, I don't know. You know, I wasn't there. I have no idea yeah, what, what yeah. story is true, what happened. Yeah. He never regained consciousness. Nobody knew mm. what happened. Pass it up front here. I have the first. <laughs> but I did have a poem I wrote right after he died for a memorial book. One line was, you, my big brother, brought me up. So that's something of how I felt mm, about him. Mm. It was eight, eight years between, he's eight years older than me. I'm curious about what happened with your children. Are they similarly inclined? Are they anarchists and I'm hippies and what happened or whatever? <laughs> you are too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're mostly doing fine. My oldest daughter has had a rough life. I think that I treated her way too much like a peer and not like a, not like a kid because I didn't have any idea of what that was, having been treated myself like a grown-up since I was three, you know, changing diapers when you're four because you're the oldest girl mm -hmm. around, the Italian culture. Um, but um, Dominique, my second daughter, with, uh, was my daughter with Amiri Baraka, is doing uh, radio stuff in LA, um, community talk radio for black, giving black info out on Stevie Wonder's small radio station, and she has a kid who's in school, who's very, very brilliant, strangely, who's um, about eight, but once he's reading like at about 14-year-old level. And first, recently, I was had to buy him a whole bunch of books about Japan, but not like kid books, like 
Japanese architecture or a book, you know, a book of all kinds. Anyway, I would go to Kinokuniya, the bookstore in San Francisco to get, it's all Japanese, has a whole English section. My next kid is, um, kid is in his 50s, Alexander. He's a keyboard artist and composer and has a small studio down in LA and just was on the road with somebody still around from long ago, Bobby Womack and did a tour with him. And then, um, who's next? Um, <laughs> Tara, Tara's in New York. She's done a lot of, um, she's worked kind of, she wanted to be successful and not poor like these artists in her family. So she did this stuff with Mac when Mac was, when Macintosh was new and she's always stayed in that game freelancing. But now she's gone back to school. She wants to get some degrees and do something or other with, um, well, it varies, but often it's like, social work, or, and sometimes it's like um, I, statistical business stuff, but she's going back to Rutgers and she's doing that. And she has a daughter, Julia, who's 10, who's a wonderful little artist herself. And then my youngest, Rudy, just got married in China to a woman in China. Um, he started out in Romance languages, being in love with them, and got his MA in Italian literature. And he barely finished, he, we were barely out of the room where I went to his at state and his graduation at state and he, we were coming home from that and he says, Mom, I think I'm gonna start studying Cantonese. <laughs> and now he knows both Cantonese and Mandarin, keeps going over there all the time. He met a woman there that he married last year. Now they're getting it together. The visas take forever to bring her here. Mm. And she's a professor in, over there in American Lit. Her father had been a, a writer until the Red Guard stopped him for 10 years, and now he only paints. Mm. And she won't write much until she gets here, but she likes the beats. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Les. One more. Okay. Uh, Diane, I'm sure you've heard this, but um, your writing has always reminded me of a uh, jazz musician. Mm -hmm. And uh, with rhythmically, and, and even what you said earlier tonight of uh, a framework that you filled with improvisation and so on. I wondered if you wanted to say something about um, the influence or the, the way jazz might have poured okay, through you that. in your... Yeah, in I can do that quick. Um, I, think my, I think that news, when, when I was around at that point, music was, a, was the first thing to break free with Bird and so on, from my, our perspective, my generation. By the time I had dropped out of school in 52 or 53, um, Miles was like playing on every, you could go hear anybody, go to the Cafe Bohemia every night for free and hear Miles Davis, or Monk would go walking around the keyboard, or, and then there was a five spot later. And all of that was just there, it was just always in the air, and was always around. I was friends with Cecil because Amir, Amiri Baraka brought him over to the house, and Cecil and I became friends because Cecil Taylor was interested in dance, as he still is, and other things. He's always looking for more kinds of things to incorporate into his work, and also into, I mean, he likes to write while he, or read his work while he's playing, too. He's, he's kind of a very eclectic, sort of, and so, you know, they were just part of my life, the music, and I wasn't so aware of it until Marion Brown told me one time that my work had 
did that kind of melody line on syncopation that jazz does. And then I, oh, I mean, I don't know what it does. I mean, I just get it, and it just happens. It's, you know, it's like I said, but, and I love to perform with music. I mean, I've done it with the um, art ensemble in Chicago. Art ensemble of Chicago, in Chicago, in there in 64, until recently. I just did it at the Burden Beckett Bookstore in San Francisco with Chuck <laughs> Peterson's group <laughs> to raise money for the bookstore. Uh -huh. That's great. Buy Look, books, support bookstores. Buy books, let, support bookstores. Let's have, let, let's have you read one more poem, and then we'll uh, go and buy books. All right. I'll read one more poem, if I can find revolutionary letters, whatever it is. Okay. Okay. This is a, it's called Ranch, and um, I wrote it <coughs> when I had just read through Maximus three times by Charles Olson. And if I can find it, I can read it. Where is it? Where is it? You read it three times at once? Well, mm -hmm. I was doing talks on Olsen at, uh, uh -huh. at Buffalo. So I had read it, and then I read it again with the uh, commentaries of um, but, uh, George, uh, what's his name, and who was doing the papers of Olsen. And then mm. I wrote Rant, and it became the last thing in that. Where the hell are you, Rant? I'm going to have to find, put an index in this damn book. 85, are you number 85? It's later than this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Come on. 76, 77. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know we don't have time for me to be looking. Where are you? No. The job. There it is. You cannot write a single line without a cosmology, a cosmogony laid out before all eyes. Music comes with it. There is no part of yourself you can separate out, saying, this is memory, this is sensation. This is the work I care about, this is how I make a living. It is whole, it is a whole, it always was whole. You do not make it so. There is nothing to integrate, you are a presence. You are an appendage of the work. The work stems from, hangs from the heaven you create. Every man, every woman carries a firmament inside, and the stars in it are not the stars in the sky. Without imagination, there is no memory. Without imagination, there is no sensation. Without imagination, there is no will, desire. History is a living weapon in your hand, and you have imagined it. It is thus that you find out for yourself. History is a dream of what can be. It is the relation between things in a continuum of imagination. What you find out for yourself is what you select. 
out of an infinite sea of possibility. No one can inhabit your world, yet it is not lonely. The ground of imagination is fearlessness. Discourse is videotape of a movie of a shadow play. But the puppets are in your hand, your counters in a multidimensional chess, which is divination and strategy. And strategy. The war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. The ultimate famine is the starvation of the imagination. It is death to be sure, but the undead seek to inhabit someone else's world. The ultimate claustrophobia is the syllogism. The ultimate claustrophobia is it all adds up. Nothing adds up and nothing stands in for anything else. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. There is no way out of the spiritual battle. There is no way you can avoid taking sides. There is no way you can not have a poetics, no matter what you do, plumber, baker, teacher, you do it in the consciousness of making or not making your world. You have a poetics. You step into the world like a suit of ready-made clothes, or you etch in light. Your firmament spills into the shape of your room, the shape of the poem of your body, of your loves. A woman's life, a man's life is an allegory. Dig it. There is no way out of the spiritual battle. The war is the war against the imagination. You can't sign up as a conscientious objector. The war of the worlds hangs here, right now, in the balance. It is a war for this world to keep it a veil of soul-making. The taste in all our mouths is the taste of our power, and it is bitter as death. Bring yourself home to yourself. Enter the garden. The guy at the gate with a flaming sword is yourself. The war is the war for the human imagination, and no one can fight it but you, and no one can fight it for you. The imagination is not only holy, it is precise. It is not only fierce, it is practical. Men die every day for the lack of it. It is vast and elegant. Intellectus means light of the mind. It is not discourse. It is not even language. The inner sun, the polis, is constellated around the sun. The fire is central. Mm. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Diane de Prima, and you, you'll be able to uh, yeah, you'll be able to sign books. Absolutely, I'll sign so, books. So uh, get get book and, and come. And if a book is signed, I'll put your name if you want on it. You know, some of the books are signed. I think they are already signed. Okay, and there's a, a recent chapbook uh, also on sale yes. there too. Um, my friend and publisher Les Gottesman just brought a chapbook up that he just did of recent poems of mine. I'll be well, selling this them. This is great. Can you do? 